0: One day, I was in my office in probably around 2000. And it was was a mother of two children, five and six years old. And her mom had Alzheimer's at 45 years old. And I knew that she had a mutation in a gene that guaranteed, in her case, she would have Alzheimer's by 45. So it was tragic to have to give her this news. And she looked at me and she said, so you're saying that when my kids are in college, there's a good chance I won't know who they are and that like hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, and like we got to fix this.
1: Welcome to the world as you'll know it. I'm your host, Judith Warner. This season, we're focusing on the brain. Specifically, we're looking at some of the most recent and astonishing advancements in brain science. Discoveries that have completely altered our understanding of how the brain works, what it's capable of, and how it can be changed. Today we're talking about breakthroughs in the understanding of Alzheimer's disease, how inflammation in the brain plays a key role in how the disease develops, how we can slow that process down, and about the potentially game-changing treatments on the near horizon. We'll be speaking to Dr. Rudolf Tanzi, an acclaimed neurologist and professor at Harvard University. When Dr. Tanzi was a graduate student almost 50 years ago, he co-discovered the first gene that causes early-onset Alzheimer's. Since then, he's co-discovered two more, and in the process, he's become one of the world's top experts in the field of Alzheimer's research. We're very lucky to have him here today. Dr. Tanzi, welcome.
0: Thanks. great to be here.
1: So, to start, I want to ask you first about something I've been reading about a lot recently, but I don't really understand inflammation in the brain. I've seen it in a number of different contexts, everything from covid brain fog to depression to aging, which is your specialty. What does inflammation of the brain mean exactly?
0: It's uh, a popular term out there, inflammaging, like inflammation with aging and The fact is, everything that happens with age that affects the body or brain in a negative way always has to end with inflammation in order to finally lead to symptoms. You know, if you take COVID, the COVID virus doesn't make you sick. It causes inflammation, where inflammation is the attempt of the body to fight the virus. So, you know, it's worth just quickly reviewing the immune system. There's two basic immune systems, right? the oldest part of the immune system called the innate immune system is inflammation. So the bacterial virus comes in and cells come in and say, let's just destroy it. Because throughout our history, infection has been our biggest challenge, right? People die of infection. So the first line of defense is just at the expense of the tissue or organ, get rid of the virus or bacteria because the choice is, Okay, have a, an organ that's going to work less well or have an infection that causes sepsis and takes you out. So if tissues and organs get hurt along the way, it doesn't matter. Get rid of the virus and the bacteria first priority. And then the adaptive immunity, which came later, is making antibodies and, you know, long-term protection.
1: So how does all of this play out in the brain?
0: The brain only has innate immunity, the first one. It only has inflammation. So the immune system is really interesting because it's a double-edged sword. You want inflammation to make sure you fight infection and stay healthy, but too robust a response will lead to problems in the body with arthritis or COVID or in the brain with diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease.
1: So when it comes to aging and specifically Alzheimer's, you have a theory that it's not just inflammation that causes problems in the brain, but more specifically the way inflammation interacts with something called amyloid plaques that are produced in the brain. Is that right?
0: Amyloid plaques. So it's, it's a sticky material, and it's uh, made of a protein called amyloid beta protein that was identified in the eighties. It's meant to it's meant to fight microbes. So it's it's part of the brain's very primitive immune system that the amyloid is made to trap any viruses or bacteria to get in, and then the plaque kind of gunks around it. Now we're making amyloid after 40 years old, even if we don't need it. And that amyloid is going to cause synaptic damage and, and damage to nerve cells. It's going to cause what are called the tangles that kill nerve cells.
1: Wait, what are tangles in the brain?
0: The tangles are made of this protein called tau. So the amyloid's outside, and then when it when it interacts with the nerve cell, inside you get these tangles made of tau that are like these twisted, wispy filaments that kill the nerve cell from inside. We believe they're formed also as part of the immune system of the brain. This is a very, very new, and I might have to add, fringe hypothesis. The average Alzheimer's disease researcher, if you asked him about this, might say, what? Because this idea that plaques and tangles with age actually evolved as antimicrobial functions is still quite new. We've discovered this in my lab.
1: Okay, so we've got amyloid and tangles, both part of our brain's defense system against infection. And if I understand correctly, both are not necessarily bad, but can be bad and can lead to a condition like Alzheimer's. How does that happen?
0: Here's the bottom line. The most important thing, you can have all the plaques and tangles in the world. If you don't induce inflammation, you don't get the disease. The plaques come 30 years before symptoms, 30 years. Wow. And then the tangles spread and propagate. I like to say the amyloid's like a match. And the tangles are like brush fires, low brush fires that spread and propagate for decades. You can also get those tangles from headbangs, like if you're playing NFL football or boxing. The match can be headbangs. In both cases, whether it's Alzheimer's or whether you're on your way to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, you know, CTE, that affects some football players, the tangles take decades to spread. And along the way, those tangles, those brush fires, have to ignite forest fires. That's inflammation. And it's the inflammation that then kills 10 times more nerve cells and removes 10 times more synapses than the plaques and tangles. And then you're on your way to some form of dementia and cognitive impairments.
1: And what is it that makes the fire ignite?
0: Oh, that's, that's a great question. So there's these little cells in the brain called microglia. So normally, if you get enough sleep at night, these little microglial cells are like little scrubby bubbles, and they're getting rid of the amyloid, and they're getting rid of debris on your brain and washing it out of the brain. But if while they're eating that debris, they stumble upon a dead nerve cell and eat that, Now their little warning flag goes up. They say, hmm, a nerve cell died. If that happens enough, these cells go from being a housekeeper to becoming a killer. They literally change their shape. And now they say, if nerve cells are dying, it must be an infection. There could be no infection at all, right? It's just, that's how they're evolutionarily programmed. So today, most inflammation in the brain is induced because we live so long and nerve cells are dying for other reasons But those little microglial cells don't know. That inflammation, like the friendly fire, is what is going to take out that part of the brain. And that will lead eventually to the symptoms of
1: Alzheimer's. So where does all that leave us in terms of treatments for Alzheimer's? There are some drugs on the market now, right? The current drugs
0: simply try to preserve the neurochemicals and the neurotransmitters used for learning and memory. And then as the nerve cells are dying, you're saying for the ones that are still alive, let's get the most out of them that we can. But the the whole process continues. So the next round of drugs that we all focused on stopped the amyloid. Well, amyloid is a good target, but you have to hit it decades before symptoms. Amyloid is exactly analogous in Alzheimer's to cholesterol and heart disease. If you have advanced... Heart disease and need a, a coronary bypass, you don't only take Lipitor, right? Or, or, or statin, right? You wanted to take that 10, 20, 30 years ago, so you never got to the point of needing a bypass. This is exactly the same for amyloid and Alzheimer's. It's something you have to know early on that it's accumulating in your brain and then hit it.
1: How do you find out? How do we find out? I mean, you know, cholesterol we can find on a blood test. How do you find out the amyloid is building up in your brain?
0: So there's a pretty good blood test out there. Um, It's not covered by healthcare because it's not so-called actionable, right? If you have a cholesterol test, it's actionable. You take a cholesterol-lowering drug. The amyloid-lowering drugs, we're still developing. I'll just tell a quick little story that one day I was in my office in probably around 2000, and and it was a mother of two children, five and six years old, and her mom had Alzheimer's at 45 years old. And I knew that she had a mutation in a gene that guaranteed, in her case, she would have Alzheimer's by 45. Now, remember, most mutations in genes don't guarantee you get Alzheimer's, only 1% to 2% of them. In 98% of cases, your lifestyle matters. In her case, it didn't. So it was tragic to have to give her this news. And she looked at me and she said, so you're saying that when my kids are in college, there's a good chance I won't know who they are. And that like hit me like a ton of bricks, you know. And like, we got to fix this. So I talked to my my colleague Steve Wagner that day, and I said, "Look, we know what this mutation in her is doing. Let's just find drugs that reverse it." And it took twenty years, but now that drug is going into clinical trials this fall, and if it's safe, I know it's going to work. It's just going to make sure it's safe. It's a whole new class of drug, and now in the future, not only will this drug be used like a statin for Alzheimer's, you know, equivalent to to cholesterol and heart disease. But for that 1% or 2% of tragic cases where they have mutations that cause early-onset Alzheimer's, usually under 50 years old, guaranteed, they start taking that drug early in life and you nip it in the bud. You just reverse what the mutations are doing. Some of your listeners might be saying, well, that's great for people who are younger we are going to be able to hopefully prevent them from having Alzheimer's. How about the 6 million, 7 million people suffering right now, I want you to know that there's hope there too, because there, and the people who are suffering now, we know we have to stop inflammation in the brain. And we have now over two dozen Alzheimer genes that are teaching us how inflammation is being turned on. And so using those genes, we're now developing other new drugs and therapies that will tamp down, stop that neuroinflammation.
1: So this is a really basic question, but regular old anti-inflammatories... They don't do the trick, right? Why is that?
0: Yeah, folks tried like ibuprofen and aspirin and steroidal drugs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They work on the peripheral immune system. They don't do much in the brain. It's a different. It's a whole different cell type in the brain. It's a microglial cell, totally different lineage and development in the body than than the macrophage cell.
1: Okay, so Advil isn't going to help. But people can reduce their risk for Alzheimer's or dementia, right? Like through lifestyle changes?
0: So on lifestyle, there are things we can do. And, and the good news is only a 1% to 2% of cases of Alzheimer's is it unavoidable. In 98% of cases, all these other 100 genes we're finding increase your susceptibility but do not guarantee the disease. And lifestyle does matter in the vast majority of cases of Alzheimer's where you have a family history. The Healing Self was the last book I wrote. And we have a whole action plan for how do you reduce inflammation. And it came up with an acronym of SHIELD. SHIELD your brain. So S is for sleep. You want to aim at seven to eight hours of sleep. It doesn't have to be continuous. If you you can't sleep more than five or six hours at night, take a nap. As soon as you have some REM, dream sleep, right after that, your brain goes through a rinse cycle where these little microglial cells, the housekeepers, clear the amyloid and clear the debris away. And sleep also consolidates your memories. So H in S.H.I.E.L.D. is handle stress. Stress is a killer. Stress causes inflammation in the brain. Stress causes the production of a toxic chemical called cortisol, which kills nerve cells. As soon as nerve cells start dying, that can trigger inflammation. You know, don't put so much pressure on yourself to answer an email or worry if somebody didn't text you back. And, and, and develop a meditation practice. We actually showed, you know, just sitting still and trying to clear your mind and breathing. You don't have to be in low disposition just 10, 20 minutes a day. Just clear your mind, and even, even that will have a profound effect on, on your brain. Eye and shield is interaction with others because loneliness, which is defined as being alone and not liking it, increases risk for Alzheimer's by about twofold. Wow. The E is exercise, and exercise is amazing. Exercise not only helps get rid of amyloid plaque, but it it also turns down inflammation, and it even induces the birth of new nerve cells in your brain. That's called neurogenesis. So the part of your brain that's most affected in Alzheimer's is called the hippocampus. And that part of the brain uniquely, unlike other parts of the brain, new nerve cells can be born while you're an adult. And if you want to induce those new nerve cells to be born, it's very simple, exercise.
1: And let me just ask you, does it have to be like really intense, you know, long exercise or can it be something relatively short and simple?
0: We're talking like 20, 30 minutes a day of just moderate exercise. So L is learn new things. So if if our listeners are learning new things right now, we are helping protect their brains. And if I'm putting them to sleep, I'm still protecting their brains it doesn't, you know, either way. <laughs> so, um, But learn new things because as you get older, what correlates with cognitive decline is loss of synapses. You have 100 billion nerve cells. And by the time you're a toddler, you have a quadrillion connections, synapses. And then... As you become an adult, the brain prunes those and says, ah, we don't need those, don't need those, need those. So you have all this potential as a toddler. And then by the time you get to be an adult, you're down to maybe you know 100, 200 trillion, maybe some people 500 trillion. But as you get older, all of the things go wrong, especially inflammation, destroy synapses. So what do you want to do? Make synapses. Because as you make new synapses, you're strengthening your neural network so that means there's more synapses you can lose because it's like money in the bank. So you have to build synapses up by learning new things every single day. Or take on a new instrument, a language. So you just learn something new every single day as much as you can. D is diet. Diet is very simple. Uh, Mediterranean diet, number one. Um, for longevity, for brain health, body health. Less red meat. It's all about a plant-based diet. Now, the reason why plant, plant-based plant Diet is good. It's very simple. Plant-based diet gives you fiber, whether it comes from a fruit, a vegetable, a seed, or a nut, or some type of whole grain. That fiber is important because it's bacteria food. So you have thousands of strains of bacteria living in your gut, called your gut microbiome, that are keeping your entire body healthy, including the brain. They're metabolites made by bacteria in your gut. They get into your brain and can help fight inflammation, can help reduce amyloid. We've shown we've shown all this in-, in different models. We know this. So some people take probiotics, that's great. But more importantly than probiotics are prebiotics. Prebiotics are plant-based diet fiber, because if you give those bacteria plant-based fiber, they thrive, they're balanced. And then they keep your brain and body happy. So anti inflammatory foods are A, foods that don't cause inflammation. <laughs> so that means lower sugar, lower fat, not processed, not junk food. So that's that's kind of passive. Just avoid foods that cause inflammation.
1: Stuff we like. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, stuff we like. Right. I mean, you know, evolutionarily we love salt, fat, and sugar because that's what keeps you alive when you when we're running around in the savannah, right? And dying at 30. And dying at 30 years old. That's why I always guess this paleo diet. always makes me laugh out loud because it's like, great, I'll, I'll take a diet that they had when they people died at 30 years old. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so it's it's really a plant-based diet.
1: We've heard this kind of advice for years. And for many people, I think it feels just kind of like general health advice. How do you prove that these really are the steps to keeping our brains healthy?
0: So pharma companies aren't going to do studies on sleep and diet or whatever. So that's why we started the McCann Center for Brain Health that I co-direct at Mass General. We've come up with indicators of brain health that you can see in the blood. So that will give us an idea of, is the brain doing better? And then we do trials on sleep, exercise, diet, and then ask, are we sending the brain in a better direction based on biomarkers for brain health we can track in the blood when we do these trials? So these are going on now you know, we we have to raise money to do that because, you know, companies aren't going to fund trials on sleep or exercise or diet. But to have the empirical evidence where I can go on stage and say, yes, sleep works, rather than, trust me, sleep works. Like when I write these books, you know, I have to say sleep, diet, et cetera. And I have to basically say, trust me, because it's all based on lab models. There aren't that many clinical trials. Now, You know, academic centers are are getting donations from folks who say, we want to be able to tell people hard evidence, not just trust me, but here's the data that it does work.
1: All of these things that work, whether it's the kind of medications that look like they may be really on the cusp of coming out and getting to people or these lifestyle factors that help the brain, do they work for other inflammation-related brain disorders, the kind we've talked about? Or are they specific to Alzheimer's?
0: So here's how to think about it. All these diseases have the same pathway. Eventually, what causes symptoms is you trigger neuroinflammation. So if you have drugs that stop neuroinflammation or protect nerve cells against it, then you can try those across all neurodegenerative diseases of aging and try them in the neuropsychiatric diseases where inflammation plays a role as well, like depression. So that's why so much of our emphasis now is on studying these genes that trigger inflammation and saying, how do we turn them off? Juyan Kim and I in my lab invented something called Alzheimer's in a dish. So we take stem cells, human stem cells, and turn them into the different cells of the brain. And then we grow them in a Petri dish. And doing this over the last seven years, we're able to take 30 years of Alzheimer's developing in a human brain and condense it down in a Petri dish to 30 days. And because of that, it's made screening-approved drugs, natural products, supplements 100 times faster, 100 times cheaper.
1: When will the general public be able to get brain checkups like we get body checkups for the rest of our body now, like the way we get you know, a blood test that covers all of these basic markers how soon till we can have that kind of thing for the brain?
0: <laughs> Again, that's exactly what the McCann Center is doing. We call them the three eyes. We're developing the indicators of brain health. So we can track them with interventions. That's the second eye. And then the ultimate goal is integrate that into healthcare. So we want brain health care to become part of routine healthcare. Because right now, when you go to the doctor, there's no checkup from the neck up, right? They get above your neck and they look at the holes in your head. They look in your eyes and your ears and your nose and in your mouth. And like, hey, I got three pounds of jelly back there that kind of matters. Yeah, we don't look at that. But now we're getting to that point. We're getting to that point now where we can say, we can look at indicators of brain health like we do for the heart with cholesterol. And, and we can develop the equivalent of the stethoscope or the blood pressure cuff.
1: Do you have a sense of a timeline? I mean, is this in the next couple of years, couple of decades? Is it is it in our lifetime?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, The the indicators are there we have the indicators but you know a lot of people say why would i want to know if it's not actionable well that's why we have to do the trials now to say what can we use once you find out at 50 years old you have you have too much amyloid in your brain there's different categories there's, there's blood indicators there's digital indicators there's brain imaging there's um, different types of you know eeg and there's also you can also look at people's lifestyle and behavior and how well they sleep as an indicator so all these different indicators. So we have at the McCann Center, the brain care score, where we where we assess your indicators categorically. And then the goal is make those indicators actionable by saying, here's what you need to take to directly address the indicator that you have that says your brain isn't functioning optimally right now, and to avoid brain disease later. So promote and preserve brain health, prevent brain disease. That's the goal.
1: This has just been so great. So so clear and so interesting and fantastic. I just want to say a really, really big thank you for taking the time to join us today. Um, I think you've enlightened a lot of people. You will enlighten a lot of people. You've certainly enlightened me. And it's just been great talking to you. Thank you.
0: You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Rudolf Tanzi. Join me next week as I speak with Dr. Tom Insel about the limits of modern psychiatry and the brave new world of mental health tech.
0: When you treat somebody with severe depression um, and they start to come out of it, um, they often feel worse and not better because for months they haven't been able to feel anything at all. And so you'll pick up for them that they're improving. And uh, the the wife knows, and the kids know, and the friends know, and that the person who's depressed feels worse than ever. And so having a way to say, look, here's the objective data. You know, your wife isn't making this up. You're actually sleeping better, though you don't realize it. You're actually more active, though you don't know that yet. Uh, And to be able to show that can really help somebody at a point where they may otherwise be the last one to know that they're improving.
1: The World as you'll know it is brought to you by Aventine, a nonprofit research institute creating and sharing work that explores how today's decisions could affect the future. The views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of Aventine, its employees, or affiliates. For a transcript of the episode and more resources related to what you've heard in today's episode, please visit us at aventine.org/podcast. Danielle Matune is the editorial director of Aventine. The World as You'll Know It is produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our associate producer is Yinka Rickford-Anguin. Our producers are Sophia Steinert-Evoy and Stephen Key. Our senior editor is Joel Lovell. This episode was mixed by Davey Sumner, and I'm your host, Judith Warner. Original music by Hannes Brown. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Roche. Our executive producers are Ann Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The next episode will be out in a week. Make sure to listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.